Well, on that note, let's also, um, just for a moment, can we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in Egypt? I don't know if you heard, but um, in Egypt, in the Coptic Christian community, uh, I think there's been at least 44 deaths as of last count. Um, there were two separate bombings in uh, in Egypt today, um, targeting Christians in their places of worship. Um, so during Palm Sunday services, and uh, and ISIS ISIL's taken <clears throat> credit for the for the suicide bombings there. And I think you know, oftentimes when we pray for places far away, um, regardless of faith background or whatever loss of life we're experiencing, it feels like. Um, That's happening far removed from us, and it's not something that could happen here. But I I just want, I've uh, I've been to Egypt a a couple times, and um, it's a a beautiful country, and the Coptic Christians there make up a small minority. It's about 10% of the community, and um, there's questions about whether or not they can be protected in that space. And so many of them, you know, last night, uh, like maybe some of you did on Saturday evening, um, if you're in part of like more of a high church setting, you thought, okay, it's Palm Sunday. And, and they laid out clothes for their kids and they laid out their clothes and they got up Sunday morning and got dressed with joy and excitement of palm branches and, and a time of celebration and the beginning of Holy Week. And that, that story got very quickly changed for those people who um, just got up to take their kids to church. So let's pray for them and for peace. Heavenly Father, God, our our hearts are broken by the continued violence in our world and the continued senseless loss of life, whether in Christian, Muslim, Jewish communities or persons of um, differing faith altogether or no faith at all. Jesus, we are heartbroken over over just loss of life in the middle of, of what was anticipated joy. We pray right now, Jesus, that you would be with those who are suffering and lost and that you would be also present in a sense of redemption in the middle of this dark moment. Jesus, we um, trust that you are there and trust that though you intended no harm or evil to befall any of these individuals, but that instead, Jesus, you, um, you do sit and weep with them and with us. As, um, as these moments occur. And Jesus, we also pray too that uh, for the families of those, um, those individuals who thought that it, best, it would be best to take life today rather than give it, we pray blessings on them too and ask that they would turn to you, the source of all life. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The title of today's message is He Answers Us Still. And uh, we today are celebrating Palm Sunday. And for those of you who grew up maybe in liturgical churches, um, I grew up in a wonderful, beautiful Lutheran church. Palm Sunday was my favorite holiday. And I know that sounds crazy, but as a kid, if you asked me, what is your favorite holiday? I said, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is my favorite, which is a weird kid answer. But I I was a weird kid, but I can also um, just, I think I can explain the reason why. So in the Lutheran church tradition and in lots of liturgical churches, when Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the Lenten period of preparation prior to Holy Week starts, it's 40 days. And when Ash Wednesday starts at that time, it sets off then that 40-day period of anticipation and prayer and preparation for Holy Week. And so at that point... In my church growing up, there would be no, there was no permission to sing hallelujah or hosanna or any words of praise. All of that had to be tabled for those 40 days of anticipation of preparation for Holy Week. 
So I don't know that I knew that as a kid, but I could tell you that I felt it. So for 40 days, we would go to church. You know, I went on Wednesday night and Sunday mornings, and I would go to church, and we were not permitted to sing any happy, joyful song. It kind of was a little bit more mournful and dirge-like for 40 days. And I, again, I didn't know that, but by the time we got to Palm Sunday, we were all ready for a hallelujah, praise the Lord, hosanna in the highest. And so when you anticipated and showed up to Palm Sunday, first of all, you got a little dressed up, not as dressed up as Easter, but a little bit. And then there were palm branches and there were songs and celebrations and people would pull off, like in our Sunday school class, we got to pull off those palm fronds and make them into the shape of a cross, right? And uh, anybody do any of those kinds of Palm Sunday type things growing up? And I just loved the idea of a parade. I loved the idea that people grabbed hold of these palm branches and just started saying, yay, Jesus, you're the best. And I thought, wow, how great that a whole bunch of people got together and did that. And that was my Palm Sunday experience. And, and I love it, and, um, and I don't lament it at all. And I hope to maybe shine a light on a little bit more information than just happy, happy, joy, joy with a Palm Sunday experience. So John chapter 12, beginning in verses 12 through 15, let's read together. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. This is where we get, by the way, the reason for our parties growing up. Uh, Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That is where we're going to end our reading. And we're going to start looking at just a couple of different things. When I was studying rabbinic thought and literature, one of the things I was taught by my rabbi was that, the, that God didn't waste ink. That was the rabbi's view of the text. God does not waste ink. So if God says something, God is saying that for a purpose. And you should ask that question, why is that in there? Why should I pay attention? So the gospel writer for the book of John, he starts with, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, we should pay attention immediately to the word festival. What festival were they experiencing? Anyone? The festival, this is for Jesus' entrance in for Holy Week. Passover. That's right. So Palm Sunday for us in our imagination looks like this today, right? This is actually Jerusalem. This is what Jerusalem looked like this morning. Um, and entering in from the Mount of Olives and crossing over to the Kidron Valley towards the Temple Mount. And I think I always pictured it in Jesus' day looking, you know, quite a bit like this, huh? Like really a wonderful crowd and celebrations and shouts and parade and music and people putting down cloaks and a colt, a donkey, all of this wonderful, amazing stuff. And, and this press of humanity, this is the view we have of, of Palm Sunday today. But in Jesus's day, Palm Sunday didn't yet exist. There was no such thing as Palm Sunday yet. Okay, it was just Passover week, the beginning of Passover week, not Passover yet. And in Jesus's day, everyone around has scripture soaked minds. So every event that they have is being interpreted in light of what it meant in that day and what it meant in light of that biblical context. So those scripture soaked minds are formed by their awareness of text. So first of all, the feast of Passover celebrates what? Good, the exodus out of Egypt. So the moment that anyone starts to think about coming to Jerusalem for this festival of which they're commanded to do, they're immediately starting to remember this 
wonderful time when God reached with his mighty arm and saved and rescued Israel out of slavery and oppression of Egypt. And that 10th chance that Pharaoh gave, that God gave Pharaoh to let his people go was the Passover where they sacrificed a lamb and they put the blood on the lintel and the spirit passed over those homes with the Passover lamb and did not kill the firstborn in that home. But that did not happen in Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh finally relents when his son has died. Remember, oppression, how being set free from oppression feels really good for the oppressed, but it feels very bad for the oppressor. Right? Egypt's having a bad day. The Israelites are having a good day. So all of that is the context of this festival of Passover. So when they walk in and when Jesus enters in, he doesn't enter in on Palm Sunday. He enters in on Lamb Selection Day. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 and following 6. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So Lamb Selection Day was the day that you grabbed hold of a lamb, you picked one out, and it came and lived with your family for the whole week before you offered it up for the sacrifice of Passover for your household. Anyone with kids? Any human beings in the room? How do you feel about seeing a cute little snuggly lamb that your kids are like, can we name it? Can we name it? And you're like, no, don't name it. Trust me, right? It's not a good idea. Do not name the lamb. The lamb will not be with us. Well, the lamb will be with us. And then in us, yeah, come Passover. So lamb selection day is the day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This is not Palm Sunday. It is lamb selection day. Anyone see any additional symbolism and power behind that, that John might be trying to lean in on a little bit, yeah? John, remember the Gospel of John also starts with where John the Baptist says, hey, look, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Which, if you live in sacrificial language, you're like, really? Do I have to be the Lamb? Right? I mean, Jesus, yeah, we can do have the theology that Jesus is coming exactly for all of that. But at that point, John is really going, hey, you're going to die. That's what the lamb does. So all that nice flowery Christian language, this has real context for Jesus and his disciples in this scripture-soaked world. Now the next thing that John tells us in his gospel is he says that they start to pick up palm branches. And now we want to figure out why palm branches. John is actually the only gospel writer that tells us that the branches were palm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention this portion. But John wants to mention that it's palm branches. And then he explains that they are shouting Hosanna, Hoshana, which I, growing up, thought it's wonderful that we have this special, weird Jesus word I've never heard of before that means praise him, right? Hosanna, Hosanna, like I've seen in the highest. Okay, so let's grab these symbols and try to figure out what it meant in Jesus' day. So culture and history speak, and many of you have heard me mention these things before, but if I say to you four score and seven years ago, you, what? Gettysburg. Gettysburg. Yeah, I thought you said virgin birth. I was like, really? (laughs) Sorry, I didn't hear. 
<laughs> Gettysburg, yeah. And you have a picture, or the virgin birth, four score and seven years ago. Yep. Uh, that would be a different one than the one we're normally talking about. Um, okay, so we immediately have Gettysburg, and we have a context for all of that. We know about, maybe you don't know exactly the right year, but we know about when it happened in our history. We know what the conflict was about. We know who the leaders were at that time. All of those types of contexts. If I say, I have a dream, can you, do you have a picture in your head? Yeah, absolutely. You, you can already picture the National Mall. I can. I can already picture massive crowds and humanity all around the reflecting pool and then needing to jump in and feel, fill the reflecting pool, right? Like, I mean, I can hear Martin Luther King Jr.'s voice in my head with just those few words. If I say 9-11, do you have a picture? Do you remember where you were? What happened, right? Who was around and and what were the first inklings? I remember sitting with Kevin, uh, watching the news. They were saying, well, an an airplane just hit this one building and we're showing the buildings. And then it was in that moment that we saw the second one hit. At first it was like, is it an accident? Like we couldn't quite tell. And then they were like, I remember the newscasters going, no, they must have just looped it again. They couldn't believe that it was happening a second time in the moment. I remember where I was. Now, all of my culture and society, the world that the entire world lives in, we all live in a post-9-11 world. Things changed that day that we're still living in the realities of that. The loss of life in Egypt today can be traced to foreign policies and realities of, of ideologies that were rising up that we experienced on our own land in 9-11. If I say put a ring on it, anyone? Yeah? Now, you don't have to have gone to the concert to see the queen to have no, to know that song, right? Now, some of you went to see Queen Bay. No? Yes? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, next time, take me. Uh, but uh, if, you, if I just say put a ring on it, you already, like, I think my mother in her 70s at probably knows this phrasing, honestly, right? I mean, I think she's heard something about a single lady. Okay, so then if I say, Luke, I am your father. Yes. Yes. You all have context for that phrasing, right? And some of you purists are immediately like, well, that actually, he never really said that, right? And you have to have all the debate. But in our cultural expression, it doesn't have to be accurate. It has to just already ring true and you have all of the, the notions that come with it. If I say to you, you are the bomb. Did I just tell you that you're an explosive device? No, I did not. I said that you're awesome and great. But a few years ago in Eureka, Northern California, some well-meaning neighbor put a box on another neighbor's front porch and wrote the bomb on the outside of the box. And inside was like the best organic produce you had ever experienced. And this person was trying to bless the neighbor with like really fantastic cabbage. But the neighbor opened up the door, not familiar with the euphemism, and called the police. And the bomb squad came to... I, I've heard that people that want to bomb your porch in Eureka typically write the bomb on the box, but yeah. So all of that, right, we can even have in those moments some argument over how symbols and how words and framings all work. The same was true in Jesus's day. So let me tell you about palm branches. I have to start with Alex, the original G. 
All right, so Alex the Great, he was the original G, and he comes through in 334 BCE, and he captures and conquers, really at that point, what we would sort of call the known world, right? All of that is in in pulled into that red framing, Alex comes in and invades and holds. So Alexander the Great is quite successful, and what he does in the land of Israel is he comes in and starts to promote Hellenism. He speaks Greek, he has theaters and gymnasium, and he's very benevolent. He's very loving. He's like kind of like, you don't have to become Greek, but you're going to want to we're kind of the best. And they are trying to persuade everyone to their way of life. This is why your New Testament is Greek. It's why we all read from left to right and not from right to left, because Alex the G was very successful. Now, after he dies, unexpectedly, he dies quite young at the age of 32 without a known heir. There was one, but they didn't know he was coming yet. Um, His empire is dismembered. It falls between four generals who fight it out and then two generals. And those two generals eventually split the empire into the northern portion of the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemies in the southern empire in Egypt. And the Seleucids are the ones that are going to get to rule over Judea. So we have no Jewish, Judean, Galilean self-rule. We only have first the Babylonians and then the Persians who benevolently re- re- Uh, allow the Judeans to return and rebuild their temple, but they're still not under self-rule. They don't have their own king. And now Alex the G comes in, and he's in charge, and then the Seleucids come in. Well, the Seleucids aren't quite as benevolent. And Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he is not benevolent at all. He does not think it's okay for people to just calmly live their own lives in Judea and then Galilee and any old way that he wants, he is going to say, you have to do it my way. And so Antiochus comes in and he orders extreme taxes. He's like, all right, one third of all your grain to me, one half of all your fruit to me. I'm going to appoint this, this wonderful Hellenized Greek Jew. He might be a Judean. We're not really sure as high priest. And his name is Jason. Sounds like a good Jewish name. Yeah. So um, he appoints priests for the Jewish people of his own choosing. Who are they supposed to be of the line of? Aaron, right? Yeah, they're supposed to be of the line that God has intended. He doesn't do that. He plunders the temple in 169 BCE. And then in, in 168 BCE, it's, a, it's rumored that he has died. And the Judeans are like, woohoo, party. Let's totally party. This guy has died because he did horrible, terrible things. He made it illegal for the Judeans to keep Sabbath. He made it illegal for them to uh, keep any of their festival holidays. He made it illegal for them to keep kosher. So you needed to eat the the bacon-wrapped shrimp that was on their plates. You had no choice. He made it illegal to study Torah. He made it illegal for women to have their sons circumcised on the eighth day, as good Jewish boys do. He made all of that illegal. And if he found out that you had circumcised your son, he took the life of that baby, killed the baby, and made the woman wear the, the baby of her, her dead baby around her neck as a symbol to all the other Judeans in the area to never, ever circumcise your son. So when he, it is rumored that he is dead, people are pretty thankful. But he wasn't dead. And he finds out that they absolutely partied. He goes in, and in 167 BC, he, that, he's like, that's it, you, Jan, you, you, you Judeans, you are too rowdy and crazy, and I'm going to erect a statue of Zeus 
in the temple. We're going to sacrifice a pig in the temple. And we will continue to forbid all of these things. Well, this ignites a revolt. So the Maccabean family or the Hashmonean family, they come up and they start a revolt in 167 BCE and Antiochus dies. And as they, re- they revolt, they go in, they rededicate the temple and they cleanse the temple. And this is now called the Feast of Dedication or as you call it, Hanukkah, right? Means dedication. And in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus went and was there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. So, where do the palm branches come in? Well, Maccabees, Second Maccabees, thanks to the Catholic brothers and sisters who kept alive our, our apocryphal books, Second Maccabees says this that on the same day that the strangers profaned the temple, on that very same day it was cleansed again, may or may not be quite accurate, the Maccabean family goes in, they keep the eight days with gladness, they cleanse the temple, and in it, while they're there, they're like, oh, you know what? It's December, and when we celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, of Sukkot, of Indwelling, which is a fall festival where we pray for rain and where God commands us to grab the palm branches and to stand before him and wave them for eight days, we had to do that in the wilderness, and we couldn't do it at God's house because of the crazy So now that we're here, even though it's December, let's make sure to celebrate Sukkot again. So we're just going to do the holiday again, right? We missed missed the birthday in the fall. We're going to pull it back into December. So the Maccabeans, in the middle of December, they keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And they remember that not long ago they had held the Feast of Sukkot when they wandered in the mountains and dens like beasts. Therefore, they brought their branches and farabouts and palms and also sang psalms unto him that had given them good success in cleansing his place. So the palm branch becomes a symbol for the Maccabeans. The Maccabeans kick out the Seleucids and they go into a period of self-rule where the Jewish people now can rule themselves and they start having coins with palm branches on them. And this symbol of a palm branch becomes deeply powerful and meaningful. It's about when God gave them victory over these pagan overlords. It's when God kicked out Antiochus Epiphanes. It's when God said, yes, you will be free again. And yes, that place will be cleansed. God gave them independence that day. And so the palm branch is equivalent to our, all of our independence 4th of July imagery. It's about when God, now, can it mean Feast of Tabernacles? Sure. But they had taken that and put it in to their celebration and remembrance of this rededication of kicking out the pagan overlords. Now, the Maccabees rule for a little bit until 63 BCE when there is a problem and two brothers, you know the story in terms of civil war, and Rome goes, ah, excellent, there's an opening, and they force a wedge into the Jewish self-rule, and Rome comes in, is now in charge. So from 63 BCE, we've got Herod's and we've got Caesar's, and Caesar Tiberius has his coin that says, high priest, divine son of God. And now Rome is in charge. So in Jesus's day, there is an oppressor. There is an Egypt. In Jesus's day, they don't have their own priests of the priestly line. The the priest is chosen by the person that pays the most money. And Caiaphas paid the most money, and so he became high priest. And Caiaphas goes every morning and checks out his high priestly garments from Rome, and then he has to return them at the end of the day. So Rome's really in charge. They're so in charge, by the way, that this is a model of the second temple in Jesus's day. Um, you can see the temple mount there. Do you see this wonderful, beautiful, big building with four sort of pillars to the right overlooking the temple mount precinct? See that? 
That's the Antonio Fortress. That's Rome. Rome's like, okay, you can have your temple. We'll let Herod build you this big temple precinct. So you kind of go, don't look like you're just some crazy backwater Greco-Roman neighborhood. We'll make you a really nice temple for your God. That's fine. But we're going to build our big fortress where we get to look in and keep an eye on you crazy, crazy Judeans and Galileans. The Antonio Fortress is right there overlooking. This is the modern day picture of the Temple Mount. So now you tell me, as the Romans are sitting up there in that Antonio Fortress, and they're looking across the Kidron Valley, and this is their view of the Mount of Olives, and they start to hear some noise and some shouting and singing, and all of a sudden they see all these pilgrims that are filling in, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that are showing up in Jerusalem for this feast of Passover, because it's Lamb Selection Day. you got to get in there, you got to go stay with your Aunt Elizabeth or, you know, Shlomo, Uncle Shlomo, whoever you're going to go and stay with, and you got to go and stay with them for that whole week you're going to pick the lamb the lamb's going to live with you and you're going to get ready because you are commanded by god to be in jerusalem for passover and what is this free, what is this uh holiday celebrate again oh yeah freedom from oppression oh yeah okay so it's a freedom festival how do you think rome feels when they start seeing those palm branches come out and the phrase hosanna doesn't mean praise him it means save please Hoshana, Hoshana, save us, Lord, save us. And that provocative impact of the cries of help, of save, accompanied by palm waving, would call to mind the Maccabean deliverance of of two centuries before. And it's a powerful appeal that would be calculated to incite the oppressed and alarm the oppressors. Palm Sunday. It's not a day of going, oh, how wonderful and how beautiful and amazing is this Messiah. It is come in, take over, kick them out. And as Jesus comes in across the Mount of Olives from the east, as all of the Messiah figures are supposed to come, on a colt, riding as a king, and he enters through the eastern gate of the Temple Mount platform, as they are all Always God is supposed to come back from the east. And the Messiah, the king figure, is supposed to come in through the east. So much so that Suleiman the Magnificent, when he built these walls, he was so, because he built over on top of the walls of Jesus' day, he was so worried that a messianic figure would come in through the east that he had the walls sealed up. This is in the 1500s, AD. No Messiah come through here. Jesus enters in through the eastern gate. And what does he do? He cleanses the temple. He enters into the temple area and begins driving out those who are selling. And he starts quoting text. He's like, hey, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it into a den of robbers. Isaiah drops a bomb. Jeremiah drops a bomb. Like they're all, everyone's listening to this messianic figure who's got this rabble-rousing crowd following him all the way from Galilee. And they're showing up for the Feast of Freedom. And they're like, yes, here we go. He's of the line of David. We've checked out the genealogy. We're going in. It's going to be fantastic. Let's pick up our American flags, everybody. It's Independence Day. We're going to dump the tea. We're going to get the Britons out, right? All of the imagery is popping for all of those people of that day. All of the language. Hoshana, save us, save us, please. It's, we're, finally, we're going to get these Roman overlords out. And we're going to get back to the Maccabean self-Judean role. Maybe there was a mess, but we're going to fix it. All of this is not that far in Jesus's history. 63 BCE was when Rome came in. This is 30 AD, 30 CE. 
It's not that long ago. And in the midst of all of that, all of that hope and all of that celebration, all of that expectation, instead we find that by Friday night, by Thursday evening, after the Passover meal, Jesus is in a garden praying, Lord, take this cup from me. And then as the Roman soldiers and the aristocracy of the Judean leadership comes on in, as he's sold into their hands for 30 pieces of silver, as the weight of the world is there, I have to think we have gotten this whole thing so wrong. Jesus wasn't leading a rebellion. He wasn't leading a group of people to go in and to militarily and forcefully take over and kick Rome out. His way is different. And as he's sitting there, and as they come at him, one of his disciples grabs a sword, right, and cuts off the ear of the high priest's assistant. They won't be able to serve anymore in the temple. And Jesus heals that person and says, no, my kingdom will not come like this. But all of the expectations, Jesus, but you entered in with us shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana. You entered in with the palm branches waving, and then you did the thing we wanted you to do. You went and you cleansed the temple. The place where they're keeping a record of our debt. Every time I go to worship God, I'm reminded of how much I owe. Why aren't you doing the thing we thought you were going to do? Why are you going willingly into their hands? And he says, don't you know I could call down a whole group of angels to fight for me right now? And I have to think the disciples are going, then do that. That sounds good. We're in it to win it. Jesus, get Rome out. Do that thing. My kingdom will not come this way. We have a hint. In Luke, it says that as Jesus is walking down and everyone's shouting these things, that Jesus stops and he weeps. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you would know the day of your coming. This is not it. Stone will be turned upon stone. There will be mass destruction here, Jerusalem. Please. This is not the way of the kingdom. Jesus weeps over this messianic, militant expectation that Rome will get annihilated and brutally kicked out. and And yet... He still answers their prayer. Save us, Lord. Save us, they're shouting. Hoshana, Hoshana, help now. Save now. Do this. Please, God. The word none. He was like got this urgency to it. He's like, I will. But it's going to look entirely different than the way that you are asking and expecting and hoping. It's like nothing you have imagined. I hear your, pro- your cry. I hear your prayer. It's misguided and it's in the wrong direction, but I will save. Through Christ's death and resurrection that we remember every year this week, that is how death will be destroyed. That is the ultimate weapon of every tyrant and every pagan overlord and every terrorist attack is the fear of death. But through the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, death is destroyed. We are rescued. We are redeemed. We are finally free. 
And as we experience the ascension, as Kevin was talking about that, and as we experience that coming of the Holy Spirit in Shavuot and Pentecost, like we talked about, as the whole community of followers of Jesus are starting to experience all that, they're saying, heaven, God's space, and earth, our space, are now being joined together. And we can see that through the ascension of Jesus. As Jesus ascends into heaven, and as then the Spirit comes down and fills the whole house where all of the believers are meeting, and then gets blown out and sent out, and we We are now the dwelling place of the presence of God in this world. We now can carry that presence. All of this hope, all of this cry, Hoshana, Hoshana, save us. All of it is finally being answered. But it's not the way we had hoped. All of that is yes in Jesus. And yet, Herod is still there. Caesar is still there. Caesar's still on his throne after Resurrection Sunday. He's still on the throne after the giving of the Holy Spirit. He has answered us in a way that is also the and yet. He answers us still, even when we get the cry wrong. And I just want to leave us with a few questions here tonight. When have you felt disappointed by God, by unanswered prayer? I mean, I I can name several times very disappointed. Where I want a healing for somebody and I'm begging for that or or I want God to do this thing or or fix this marriage or, or save this life and I feel so deeply disappointed and angry and frustrated with that unmet expectation, with that unmet hope. Looking back, Perhaps we're also able to see that the prayer was answered, but maybe not as we wanted. Yes, my friend was healed from cancer, but not this side of heaven. Do I trust that the prayer has been answered, but it doesn't look the way that I wanted? And then in those moments, what helps us trust God when we're dealing with that disappointment and that loss and that anger and that hurt? How do we move forward? And I don't have any easy answers for that. I think part of what helps me is being with you and hearing how God has helped you and and me and all of us through those difficult times of loss, of hurt, of disappointment. I think as Christians who believe that God is all-powerful and all-loving, that's actually the really hard part, isn't it? Because we believe that and and yet... He hasn't answered our prayers the way that we want them answered. My grandmother had her first child when she was 30, my mom. My mom had her first child, me, when she was 30. I always thought it was really great because I could remember everyone's age. Like in these 30. So my expectation all of growing up was when I'm 30, that's when, you know, pretty sure it's kind of like just put your order and you get. I'm blessed to be a mom. It didn't happen when and how I thought it was going to. And on this side of that story, I can say thank you. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't and still isn't lots of pain and hurt and disappointment all along that way. 
Now, if I, God had done it the way that I expected, I wouldn't have Tabby and I wouldn't have Phoebe. So do I want it to change? I don't. I'm deeply grateful for where I'm at, but that does not mean that there's not still hurt and pain and disappointment and questions all along the way. I know we all have stories like that. The things that have helped me has been all of you in those deep moments of pain and loss and frustration and anger and feeling deeply forgotten. Some of you showed up and reminded me that Jesus loved me. And you did that in really tangible ways. When I sat begging God on my knees two hours before a Bible study saying, God, you have forgotten us and you have not paid attention and I really love you and I work really hard on it and I'd like a little something this way. And three, four hours later, and trust me, this does not happen that often. It's why I can tell this one story. Some people showed up, people in this room, and made it possible for us to adopt Phoebe. And I hadn't told them. They just heard God say to come and to help. And I'm deeply grateful for all of those moments. You see, when we cry and we cry out for the oppression, he answers us still, even when the cry is wrong, even when it's misguided, even when it doesn't have any of the right symbolism with it, even when the words aren't correct, God still hears the cry and God still calls and God still answers. But we must be prepared for the fact that it won't often look the way that we have wanted it to look. He answers us still. And his way has long-lasting, forever redemptive impact. Not for the moment of the release of pain in our own life, but for the long journey of the victory over death. Those pagan overlords, they might still be here, but we know the end of the story. Jesus has given us victory, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he answers us still. Amen.